Luke chapter 8 is the sermon text for this evening. That is on page 1606 if you're using the Pew Bible. Had a little change of pace this week. The typical morning text is in the evening. We will continue here in our journey through the Gospel of Luke. It's been a blessed time. Really wonderful to see Luke's ability to weave different things into his account of Jesus. And tonight is certainly no different. Very famous account here in the Gospels. And we read here at Luke chapter 8 verses 22 through 25. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. It's interesting that sometimes themes throughout Scripture go together in interesting and providential ways, and I feel like what we considered this morning and what we are considering this evening is an example of that. There are various ways in which uh, the wonder of this passage is increased by uh, the wonder that is created in Psalm 90, which we considered and looked at this morning. Uh, Power and authority, these kinds of dynamics run through this account of Jesus calming the storm. And certainly in the Psalms, as we consider human life, it is always important to keep in mind that human beings do not have authority over life itself. That was one of the reasons we considered Psalm 90 as we thought about the sixth commandment. We thought about it through the lens of God's authority over life. Man's mortality and transience. And then finally, the redemption of God, which shows us just how much he values human life. We saw majestic, splendorous things like mountains in relation to dust. And mountains really are glorious things, aren't they? Majestic, humble. They humble us, don't they? Make us feel small. Tonight, there is a a different grandeur which we must consider, the grandeur of the sea. And in order to understand some of the things that are going on in this passage, we need to understand uh, the the way that people viewed the sea in the ancient world. We'll look at that in just a few moments. But what this story is doing is very specific. It's important for Luke's case in, in showing Jesus to be the Messiah, It punctuates a running set of stories as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke that show the identity and the authority of Jesus Christ. That's often what Luke is doing. 
proving Jesus' identity as the Son of God, and then, and then showing the nature or the extent of his authority. And that is what is going on here in this passage, identity and authority. When the disciples uh, learn in this account that they need to reassess, they need to rethink the way in which they understand Jesus to be the Messiah, uh, we see that they are clearly not grasping the whole picture, and the challenge is for us to grasp the whole picture as well. For as Jesus shows his disciples that he is Lord over the seas, he is showing that he is truly Lord of all. The question before us is, do we understand what that means, that Jesus is Lord of all? For us tonight, this is important as we look to our Savior, who is the Lord over the storm. He is the Lord over the storm. Let us then turn to the text here. Luke is a, of course, master storyteller. This passage begins with a a simple declaration from Jesus. And in just a few verses, Luke has so many things to tell us. It begins, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they get into a boat and they set out. Quick geographical comment here. To go over to the other side of the lake or or the Sea of Galilee would have been to go to the eastern shore. This would have been the region of Decapolis. And this is a part of Galilee that Jesus has not yet been to as we have read our way through the Gospel of Luke. So relative to Luke's account of Jesus, this would have been the first time that he goes over to the eastern parts of Galilee. But what else is going on in this story? This is certainly the most adventurous that Jesus and his disciples have been up to this point. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. They're crossing a body of water. And it would have been a common occurrence in in the stories of the heroes of the day, the stories that people told in the ancient world. You know, they didn't have TVs or movies. They couldn't uh, veg out and binge on Netflix shows like people do a lot of times today. They would tell stories to one another. There are many stories of heroes, and in most of these stories of a hero who would be in distress, oftentimes there would be a crossing of a body of water, a common characteristic in those kinds of stories. And the reason why is because water was seen as one of the greatest embodiments of danger in the ancient world, really an embodiment of death. Stories like Odysseus, where we see the sea as a major foe, but we also see this woven together throughout many stories in the Old Testament. Jonah prays from the belly of the whale, and he says this, and it's not so much the whale or the fish, sorry, the great fish that is his concern, but it is the sea. This is what Jonah says in chapter 2. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. There would also be creation myths in the ancient religions of the people of that day. And the sea would often be a foe that would be arrayed against the gods in creation stories. Gods like Marduk would array themselves against the foe of the sea, and if victorious, a world was created. The gods of mythology had to overcome the chaos of the sea in order to create the world. The earth was thought to be brought forth out of chaotic waters. All of these things would have been present in the mind of the ancient hearer. 
The true story of creation, which we find in our scriptures in Genesis, is not God necessarily as a warrior against the seas. He does not have to overcome them or vanquish them as a foe, but rather it shows us that God is Lord over all the seas. He commands them. They're within the word of his power. But there is still this sense of water connected to the idea of chaos, that God needs to command and to control them with the words of his power. So with all of that in mind, it's not surprising that in this account, in the Gospel of Luke, the sea rears its ugly head against the main character, Jesus, our hero. As they set out on the boat, which this would have had to have been a a fairly large boat to accompany Jesus and the twelve and maybe even a couple others, they set out on the boat and there is a huge storm, a gale wind. Our NIV translation says a squall. It's an interesting word. But it's a strong, significant storm. Thus, the most embodied uh, thing uh, about the grip of death, the sea, that which most symbolized death and danger is coming against Jesus. This is becoming, in many ways, a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. It's a very important episode in this Gospel. For if this is God's man to set up his kingdom, then God would see him through. Jesus and his identity are being put to the test. His life cannot end now if he truly is the Messiah, if he's God's man for the job. Why? Because the God of Israel was a God who ruled the sea. He commanded it. He had it within his strength to command, to go here and there. He had the ability to hush the wind, to calm the waters. Thus, if Jesus is God's man, he will do just that, and he will see Jesus through. As I mentioned previously, there would have been no power of nature as great as the stormy seas, not an earthquake, not a volcano, nothing compared to the vast darkness, the all-encompassing power of the great and the dark and the stormy seas. In Psalm 18, King David describes a near-death experience And he describes it like unto being tossed around in the waters of the sea of destruction. And says that the mighty seas are like Sheol. And yet the God of the Bible rules over the sea. And there in David's psalm, it's not as if he was nearly drowning. He's just describing a near-death experience. Casting it in sea-like terms. And he says that God drew him out of many waters. It is only God who can stand against the power of the sea, who can command a force like the mighty raging wind that is coming upon Jesus. We read in Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And then he personifies, the psalmist personifies the raging seas and calls it Rahab. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So we're going to find out something about Jesus in this story, aren't we? The battle stage is set. If he is God's man, then God will use his power over the sea to protect him. 
But imagine the dissonance that would have been created in the mind of the disciples as they see uh, the storm coming upon them in the distance. You're on a body of water, so you can see far out onto the horizon. And the storm is coming upon them. And what would the disciples have been thinking? Were we wrong about Jesus? Did we have it all wrong? So this is not only a turning point in the Gospel of Luke, but it's also another episode in a battle that Luke has been developing for some time now. Since the temptation story of Jesus, we have seen Jesus versus the devil, or Jesus versus the forces of evil. And since then, we have seen Jesus overcome foes like demons and sin and sickness, exercising his authority against all of these things. But yet, there are many questions in the minds of the disciples, in the minds of the people who are following Jesus, around the extent of his power. How powerful really is this Jesus? His kingdom seems to advance, but his kingdom seems to advance in mysterious ways, in ways that people do not expect. Again, he's not using the means of earthly power, is he? He does not carry a sword. He does not have a great army with him. His kingdom advances through the humble proclamation of the word of God. That is how Jesus' kingdom increases we have just looked at the parable of the sower. It, it's, it has just happened in the Gospel of Luke, but something might not sit right with us in the parable of the sower. Why is it that uh, the devil can come and snatch away the word of God in the parable of the sower? So for those who are hearing the Gospel of Luke, they might be thinking to themselves, who really is more powerful, Jesus or the devil? But this episode, this episode of Jesus calming the sea confirms two things in the minds of the reader, in the mind of the disciples. First, that the words that Jesus speaks can really be considered the word of God because we see the many ways in which the Bible weaves together. This is what God does when he speaks his word and Jesus does exactly the same thing here. And second, we are shown just how powerful that word is. By the end of these few verses, The disciples will know what kind of force, what kind of power is behind the words of Jesus. But until Jesus acts and performs the miracle of this story, the disciples are anything but assured. It's just the opposite, in fact, as we read this story. They are actually quite convinced that they are going to die in the boat. Imagine, everything that has happened up to that point, and you can understand where they're coming from, right? You can understand why they would have been scared, but imagine all the things in one moment that have happened up to this point in the Gospel of Luke sort of fade away, and they are convinced that they are going to die. They have abandoned their faith that God would see them through, either for Jesus' sake or for their own. They think they know what is coming. And secondly, what should strike us is that the disciples do not go to Jesus to ask for help. Isn't that odd? They go and they tell him what is going to happen. They say, we're going to die. There is no question that is put to Jesus. So if you were convinced that Jesus had the power to still this storm, to calm the raging seas, to silence the winds, wouldn't you go and ask for his help? So we learn something about the disciples. There is none of that here. They simply tell Jesus that death is coming. And apparently he'd better wake up so that he can prepare to die. 
In the wake of the parable of the sower, we see a clear example here in the disciples of those who do not hear the word and also do it. But Jesus is about to give grace to them to aid their faith. So in all of these things, we see that the stage is set. That brings us to verse 24. And this is the pinnacle of the story. In, in, in just a few words, Luke does not go on and on and on about what happens here, even though in many ways we are curious. How does the, the wind go away immediately? Did the sea just immediately become glass-like? Some, some mystery around all of those things. But even just within a few words, there are several interesting things to note. And they're pointing us to a fundamental truth this evening. Fundamental truth. Not only is Jesus carrying the power of God within him, but Jesus is God. For he is fulfilling the scriptures and he is doing the things that God does in the Old Testament. This is a, a, a wonderful storytelling of the divinity of Jesus. You know, that we can go through texts and try to connect different scripture passages to show that this is theologically showing how Jesus is the Son of God and himself fully divine. This is really showing that Jesus himself is divine through this story account. We look at the first three words here from the middle of verse 24. It says, he got up. He got up. And those words are actually fairly important. They seem sort of unassuming, but they are important because they color an image for us related to God in the Old Testament. When God's people felt as though God was not hearing them, that he was not in tune to hear their cry, or perhaps he was slumbering or sleeping on the job, they would pray to him with particular urgency, and they would ask him to awake. Psalm 44 is one of the best examples of this. Psalm 44 says this, For your sake, Lord, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We know how the story ends, so we're kind of cheating in a sense, working backwards. But we ought to read the rising up of Jesus as God himself being roused to act on behalf of his people. Jesus awakes to help the disciples, to come to their aid. And this is perhaps the most remarkable thing about this story. The very famous story of Jesus, several thousand, perhaps million sermons that have been preached on it. Really, to me, one of the most remarkable things about this story is that God shows his sovereign ability to take all of these literary and metaphorical actions with deep symbolism, uh, the danger of the sea, the, the power of God to calm the wind, and he can unfold them in literal time and space and weave all of these things together to show that in history, God showed himself, Jesus showed himself to be divine. That brings us to an another point where we read that Jesus rebuked the wind, rebuked the wind. Hopefully you remember this from earlier in the Gospel of Luke. We took a good deal of time to think about this word rebuked in chapter 4. 
Jesus rebukes both a demon and a fever within a few verses of each other. Jesus rebuked a demon and a fever. And that story was given to show Jesus' authority over the powers of evil, over the powers of the curse. This term for rebuke is one which carries the idea of someone from a higher place of authority commanding someone in a lower place of authority. A father would rebuke his son, for example. It also brings something to an end. Rebuking brings something to an end. In Luke 4, it brought an end to the possession of a demon. It brought an end to the destruction that a fever had wrought on a body. Rebuking something brings the end of something's reign. I heard one preacher who used the word blast. It's like blasting something. And surely the disciples felt like this storm was going to wreak all kinds of destruction on them. They think that they're going to die. They must have felt the hopelessness that the people of Israel, our spiritual ancestors, felt at the shores of the Red Sea. Pharaoh was behind them and the raging waters were in front of them. They felt like all was lost. And Psalm 105 recounts just what happened on the shores of the Red Sea. It's perhaps uh, this verse that is most clearly showing us just to what extent Luke is telling us that Jesus is God in the flesh. For in Psalm 105 verse 9 we read that God rebuked the sea and it dried up. Same exact verb, same exact form. What Jesus does in rebuking the storm on the sea. In Psalm 105, God rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. On that day for Israel, God did what only he could do for his people. And as he rose out of his sleep on the boat, Jesus did what only he could have done for his disciples and for himself. Just as only God can rebuke demons and sickness and sin and fever, Only God can rebuke the sea. It is God's verbal blasting of whatever stands opposed to him. And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing in this passage. In Zechariah chapter 3, we read, same verb, same form, we read that God rebuked the devil. And isn't that what Jesus is showing us he is capable of doing? Sickness, sin, death, Satan, all stand opposed to God. If these belong only to God, then who must Jesus be? We can assume that the storm subsiding is not something that happened over the course of an hour. It's not as if the storm began to pass over. The storm went away. It went from raging waters to glassy sea. A smooth and calm night on the lake. The question that the disciples ask shows that they are beginning to realize just the significance of what has happened and what Jesus is showing them. And yet also we see how slow of heart they are to believe all that Jesus shows them. Who is this, they ask. He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. It is is as if they are standing in front of a a neon-lit sign, flashing, saying, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God, the Son, and yet all they can do is question. Perhaps in the midst of this moment, they are 
trying to fly through the passages uh, passages of the Old Testament, trying to, to put the pieces together of what exactly just happened. And maybe one of them would have recalled part of Psalm 107, which says this of God. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves were hushed. Thus Jesus asked them, where is your faith? They know that Jesus is doing the mighty works of God, for only God can rebuke the seas by the word of his mouth. But still they hem and haw when they should fall down in worshipful adoration. But perhaps we should not be so hard on the disciples. Perhaps rather we should try to do better ourselves. The challenge for us tonight is that we must put our faith in Christ and in his word. We must know that he is truly Lord of all. He is not merely God's man for the job. He is the God-man. That's who Jesus is. Thus, just as the disciples are, are filled with fear and amazement in this story, so we should always be filled with fear and amazement. This word for fear is one that can mean being afraid, being terrified, which that's probably part of what the disciples are experiencing here. But it's also a word that can mean worshipful reverence. And that is the posture we must have before Jesus Christ. We must be filled with fear and amazement. This is true Christian new covenant worship. That we worship God in all of the ways that he has revealed himself to us. The great blessing for us is that we worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as equal in substance and power and glory. Jesus is showing himself to be exactly that, God the Son, in this wonderful story. This is what truly ought to make us stand in amazement. Not just at moments like the disciples in the boat, as they stared out on the glassy sea, but every moment of our lives when we reflect just on who Jesus Christ is for us. And here we, we must see what this story ultimately symbolizes. Strong symbolism in this story. In this account uh, of Jesus calming the raging storms on the sea, Luke is foreshadowing Jesus doing something else. Overcoming other stormy waters of death through the cross and the resurrection. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, in the belly of Sheol for three days, so too Jesus would be cast into the deep. And the waves of death would surround and overtake him just like David in Psalm 18. But the powers of the sea of death would not be able to hold Jesus. And he would pass through those judgment waters. He would pass through those raging waves and ultimately vanquish them. Death would strike a temporary blow against Jesus. But when the Father raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Spirit, Jesus overcame death and assured us that one day he will completely remove its sting. This text is calling us to trust in all of those things tonight. And in so doing, Luke's gospel gives us a powerful message of hope as we trust not only in God's man, but in the God-man, the Lord of the seas. For our life is often understood in pictures and symbols that can be related to this kind of story. Sometimes life can be like sailing on a glassy sea, 
a calm day out on the waters, gentle breeze blowing. But often, a hurricane-like gale-force wind comes upon our lives. And in those times, what is the hope that we have? Is it not that Christ is our captain, guiding us through the stormy waters of life? Truly, our Christian hope is that Christ has gone into the storm for us. And he has come out the other side as a victorious warrior. So when the floods of life surround us, and the waves and billows come crashing over our heads, we can know uh, not only that God commands it all, but that he guides us through the storm for our good. And he has proven that he has done so because he has shown us in Jesus Christ. We do not always understand how the picture fits together. But in our finitude, our transience, our mortality, our inability to know all things, it is good to know that Christ knows all and that he is the captain of our ship. As we look forward to the day of resurrection, may we be encouraged that at the end of it all, At the end of it all, because of Christ, there will be no more sea. At the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, describing the new heavens and the new earth, this is what it says. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's the first thing that it says. Because in the new creation, because of what Christ has done, there will be no danger There will be no death because he has gone into the storm for us and he has come out the other side. Because of all of that, we hold on to the promise that the seas of trial which we now experience will one day be gone. For Christ is our captain. For Christ will guide us through. He will one day blast away the sin, death, and destruction that we have all experienced in this life. Thus, may we be filled with fear and amazement as we look to our Savior, the God-man, the master of our fate, the captain of our souls. Let's pray. Father, then by your Spirit, strengthen us for the journey. In the storms of life, God, May we see all that Christ has done for us. You command the winds and the waves and the waters. Even now, your Son, who is at your right hand, upholds the universe by the word of his power. What wonderful promises. Father, impress all of them upon our hearts. Give us strength then as we go. In Christ's name, amen. Let us end our time of worship in song and singing.